we haven't met. Uh, my name is Rankin. I help out from time to time when Jeff needs a break. Would you pray with me before we begin this morning? Heavenly Father, today we remember and honor those who have made the ultimate sacrifice for the freedoms that we enjoy every day. And we call to mind how they have followed in the footsteps of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Lord, would you please hold our servicemen and women around the world in your strong arms. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Well, I want to talk to you this morning about a story I'm sure you've heard because it's the most famous story in the Bible. It is beloved by uh, children and adults alike. It's made its way into our common language uh, anytime an underdog faces uh, insuperable odds. Rudy, Hoosiers, the miracle on ice. We say it's a true David and Goliath story. And we get the message. You know, if I can just have faith like this little shepherd boy. We're so familiar with this story that we miss something. We miss that we get this story all wrong. And that has very uh, real effects for how we face the giants that we come up against in our lives. So if you'll turn to 1 Samuel 17, as I read through this story, and as I, as I read through, I want to ask you to consider where do you find yourself in this story? Where do you find yourself in this story? 1 Samuel 17, I'm going to begin in verse 3. And the Philistines stood on the mountain on the one side, and Israel stood on the mountain on the other side with a valley between them. And there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. He had a helmet of bronze on his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail, and the weight of that coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. He stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. If he's able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Verse 32, And David said to Saul, Let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. Saul said to David, You're not able to go up against this Philistine to fight with him, for you are but a youth. And he's been a man of war from his youth. But David said to Saul, Your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And when there came a lion or a bear, took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. And if he arose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. And David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, Go, and the Lord be with you. Verse 40, And he took his staff in his hand and chose five smooth stones from the brook and put them in the shepherd's pouch. His sling was in his hand, and he approached the Philistine. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. 
The Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. The Philistine said to David, Come to me and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air, the beasts of the field. Then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. And I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know there is a God in Israel, and that all this assembly may know that this is how the Lord saves, not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into my hand. When the Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet David, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. And David put his hand in his bag and took out a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine on his forehead. The stone sank into his forehead and he fell on his face to the ground. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and with a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him. There was no sword in the hand of David. Then David ran and stood over the Philistine and took his sword and drew it out of its sheath and killed him, cut off his head with it. There are certain moments in history that mark epic transitions. The printing press, the light bulb, the automobile. These moments where uh, seismic changes are happening underfoot, and you and I are living in such a moment. And the thing about living in one of these transition points is that it evokes all sorts of strong emotions in us. Now, what emotion, if I ask you, if you could name one, what emotion do you think is dominant in America today? Well, I, you could make a case for anger, couldn't you? There's a lot of anger, even outrage out there on all sides. You could make a case for anxiety, it's never been more true that ours is an age of anxiety. But above all, what we're awash in more than anything else, underneath that anger and that anxiety is fear. We live in a fearful time. But talking to us about fear is like talking to a fish about water. I mean, it is so much a part of our experience that we don't even recognize. What's water? You may have heard the most common command in the Bible is do not fear, do not be afraid. I'm told it's mentioned some 365 times. That's one for every day. Now, why would we need to be told over and over again that we need not to be something unless this were the natural daily disposition of our hearts? And there are reasons to be afraid. The Bible never says we have no reason to fear. These giants are not make-believe. They are real, these giants that we face. Some of you are facing the giants of economic insecurity, rising health care costs, and a declining, a declining retirement account. Some of you are facing giants of health. You or someone you love facing the giant of cancer, mental health concerns for you or for your children, those are scary threats 
closer to home, and by that I mean in our own bodies, how our nervous systems react to perceived threats, fight or flight, staying on constant high alert, insomnia, hypertension, addiction, underneath and behind, so many of the ways we try and cope with our stress stands our fear. We are full of it. And it affects us more than we, we realize. We suffer more from fear than from the things we suffer. Fear, it's been said, cuts deeper than a blade. Now, we may be far removed from ancient Israel, but we know what it means to be in a battle, facing a threat that terrifies us. So as we look back at this famous story, I want to ask again, where do you find yourself? There are three main characters in this story, Goliath, Saul, and David. Which one embodies how you face your fears? Well, consider Goliath. Imagine Shaquille O'Neal, only bigger and not smiling. He's covered in armor. The weight of his armor, we are told, was 5,000 shekels. That's about 125 pounds. Just his armor, armed with a sword and a shield, a coat of mail, with a spear whose shaft was thick as a beam and a javelin strapped between his shoulders. His armor was all bronze. It must have gleamed in the sun. The listing of Goliath's armor was very unusual in the Bible, as if to highlight this man by appearance is one of imposing military might. And we're told that day that the armies lined opposing hillsides with a valley between them. There's one word used to describe Goliath in verse 4. He is called, quote, a champion. Very unusual word in, in, in the Bible, only used here. It means a man between, a representative. And that's what Goliath was. For each day, morning and evening, for 40 days, he would walk down into the valley of Elah, and he would stand and he would shout to the hillside, verse 9, Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. And if he's able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him, you shall serve us. How does Goliath face his battle? He is supremely confident. When he sees David, rather than laugh, he's insulted. He disdain, am I a dog that you would come to me with sticks? Now, why is Goliath not afraid? Because there's nothing in his sight that he feels he cannot conquer. He believes his strength and his resources will be sufficient for anything that comes up against him. I mean, Goliath has got it covered, literally from head to toe. He is covered. Where is Goliath's confidence? And what does he place his trust? Goliath is the epitome of self-reliance. Now, most Americans love the story of David and Goliath because we love an underdog. It's part of our national identity. And yet, while we may have started as an underdog, one of the most influential Americans who ever lived was a man named Ralph Waldo Emerson. Even if you've never read a word Emerson's written, his essays have shaped everyone in this room and how we see ourselves. One of his most famous essays contains these words, quote, Nothing is at last sacred but the integrity of your own mind. Trust thyself. Every heart vibrates to that iron string. 
I have taught one doctrine, Emerson writes, namely the infinitude of the private man. You know what the title of the essay was? Self-reliance. It's more true today than when he wrote it. Now, you may not consider yourself a person of faith, but Emerson was a man of deep faith. And he tells us his most basic faith is that the ultimate source of strength is found by looking within. Trust thyself. No one reads David and Goliath and, and wants to relate to the giant, <laughs> but under threat, where do we most often turn? Same place as Goliath. Self-reliance, our own strength. It's in our language. It's how we talk to each other. We say, you got this. Let's go. <laughs> but here's the question. Here's the question. Looking back on the story, should Goliath have been afraid? Should he have been afraid? I mean, he wasn't. And that was his downfall because in the end, you know what did him in? A pebble. A pebble. His overconfidence, his pride blinded him to reality. I had a good friend in Los Angeles who was a very accomplished screenwriter in his 30s at the time. He was handsome, so talented, grew up in the church, but had since walked away. He said something to me once over lunch that I've never forgotten. He had just found out his dad had been diagnosed with a terminal disease. And he said, my whole life I thought I was fearless, but you know what I've learned? It's easy not to be afraid when you haven't been confronted with a nightmare. Well, it's easy not to be afraid. And we don't like feeling afraid. It makes us feel vulnerable. And vulnerability feels like weakness to most of us. But I like what the great poet David White once said. He said, vulnerability is not a weakness. Vulnerability is not even a choice. Vulnerability is the underlying, ever-present, and abiding undercurrent of our natural condition. In refusing vulnerability, he continues, we refuse the help that we need at every turn of our existence. White's saying admitting that, that's, that, that ju that's just waking up. Because sooner or later, the nightmare does come. And the only choice we have is how we're going to inhabit our vulnerability. See, how does, how does Goliath face the world without fear? There's no fear in this man, no fear of God. His bravado has blinded him to the truth about reality. He's always fought his battles in his own strength until he comes up against something that he can't manage. And you know what it is? It's just a pebble. Because no matter how big we are, we're so frail. Just our natural condition. So we're going to keep white-knuckling our way through. Or what takes more courage, stop denying and admit that we need help at every turn. That's just being awake. Which brings us to Saul. You might know Saul was the king of Israel, the first king. His power, his control was being threatened. How does Saul approach the battle? Look with me at verse 11. It says that when Saul and Israel saw Goliath and heard his challenge, quote, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. <laughs> that word dismayed means, literally means to shatter into pieces. In other words, when he saw Goliath, he wasn't just scared, he went to pieces. Now Saul, you might remember, was a big man himself a brave warrior. 
And he was a religious man. He believed in God. Unlike Goliath, Goliath was a Philistine. To this day, if you call someone a Philistine, it means they are ignorant, wayward. Saul believed in God. He worshipped God. He talked to God. Later in the story, when he is trying to encourage David, he says, the Lord be with you. But when a giant came into his life, his fears revealed him. Saul's fears revealed that in which he really trusted. And I think in this way, Saul is like a lot of people in southern Indiana. We talk a good game. We say the right things. But when the battle comes, our fear reveals where our trust is really placed. Do you remember when David says, I'll fight him? The first thing Saul says in verse 33, you can't go against him. You were but a youth. Even though by profession of faith, Saul is very different than Goliath, his real faith, his operative faith, Saul looks very much just like him. He looks to his circumstances. He falls back on his own armor. Literally. Did you notice? When David assures Saul he'll fight him, what's the first thing? Verse 38, first thing Saul does. He put a helmet of bronze on his head and clothed him with a coat of mail. You see, he's trying to put his armor on David. And we imagine the young boy sort of clanking around in the king's armor. As if, as if Saul were saying, come on, let's be practical. Let's be practical. I mean, we can talk about God delivering you and all that. But when you get right down to it, we know how you handle things in this world. You suit up. You suit up and you go to battle feels very natural to us, but it can take us to some dark places. In Star Wars, how did Anakin Skywalker become Darth Vader? Here's what George Lucas said in an interview. He said, Anakin Skywalker turns into Darth Vader because he fears, which is so odd. We don't think of Darth Vader being afraid of anything, but Lucas continues. He turns into Vader because he fears. He fears he's going to lose things. He can't let go of his mother. He can't let go of his girlfriend. He can't surrender. He can't surrender, and that puts him on the path to the dark side. And then Lucas says the key line, he fears he's going to lose the things that give him the power that he needs. He fears he's going to lose the things that give him the power that he needs. Well, Lucas is saying behind Vader's uh, ambition is his fear, his fear of losing things that tell him who he is and why he matters. He's desperate to hold on to them and terrified of losing them. You know who Darth Vader sounds just, he sounds just like King Saul. Both of them start out as admirable men. Both of them are warriors, big and strong, but both of them happen to be filled with fear. Now, no one reads the story and thinks that they identify with King Saul, much less Darth Vader. But fear fills our lives as well. Boy, it leaks out in our anger. We're trying to protect something we think we have to have. It leaks out in our control. I have to take care of this or nobody else will. Let me ask you, what do you think the most frightened place in Evansville is, if you had to pick? What is the most frightened place in this city? If you want to find the most frightened place in this city, you go to the corridors of power. You go to the boardrooms. You go to the country club. 
You go to the successful churches. You go with those who feel they have the most to lose. Those will be the ones least able to let go. He fears he's going to lose the things that give him the power that he needs. The Lord can never be your strength until you've acquired the courage to admit how full of fear that you and I often are. That's the only way you can be brave. You learn something very rare in this world. You learn how to inhabit your vulnerability. For it's only when you can face your fears and name them that you can finally learn what it means to be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Which brings us to David. How does David face the battle? It's easy to misread the story and think David's confidence is in himself, but that's not what he says. Look carefully at verse 37 and then verse 45. How does David face his fears? He says, The Lord who delivered me then in the past from the lions and bears will deliver me now. Goliath, you come to me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts. That's battle imagery. I come to you in the name of the Lord. That is trusting in his character. That all this assembly may know, verse 47, the Lord saves not with sword and spear, but when you get right down to it, in real life, David says, the battle is not ours. It's not up to us. Yes, we fight, but what does David say? Verse 47, the battle is the Lord's. Now, I submit to you this story is so familiar to us that we miss just how radical this is, this stance in facing the giants, because these aren't just words for David. This is real power for how he engages life. The story stresses, verse 50, there was no sword in the hand of David. To make it abundantly clear where he has placed his trust in the name of the Lord. Unlike Achilles and the Iliad who's fighting for his own honor, David is not up in arms to protect what we're so concerned about, his own reputation. For David, it's about the honor of the Lord. So when David finally comes face to face with Goliath, he says, verse 46, this day the Lord will deliver you into my hand and I will strike you down that all the earth may know there is a God in Israel. I mean, here is a man so passionate for the glory of God in the eyes of the world, he's willing to stake his life on it. His trust, his confidence is in the living God, his character, his particular care. He delivered me in the past, David says, from lions and bears. And you notice, he says, I took them by the whiskers. Now, let me ask you, is that you? You ever taken a bear by the whiskers? You ever take a, a, a lion by the scruff? Is that you? You like that? Just be like David? Is that you? Is that what we're supposed to take away? See, I'm weary of hearing sermons about David and Goliath that end with some version of just be like David. And so we walk out of church talking like David, thinking we're Goliath, and still acting like Saul. Because the moral of this story is not just be brave, just be like David. You too can defeat the giants that you come up against. You know why that doesn't work? Because sometimes you will come up against a giant or someone you love will that you can't beat. 
You ever watch someone you love die of Alzheimer's? Cancer? Everyone knows we ought to be brave and strong, but telling us what we ought to be when we face a nightmare can just make us more discouraged. Ever thought about that word? Discouraged. You know you ought to be brave, but knowing how we ought to be doesn't help us. More often than not, it just discourages us because no matter how hard we try, we can't shame ourselves into change. See, you were never intended to read this story and think, now if I can just be like David. I mean, would that we were. Would that we were. But we're not. And if you try to be, you're just going to keep being a poser. So I'll ask again, where do you fit in this story? I mean, we don't want to be Saul or Goliath. If we're honest, we're not David. So where do we fit in? You know where we fit in? The same place we would have been had we been there on that day. You know where we would have been? Standing on the hillside. The assembly, the congregation, the onlookers, terrified and dismayed. That's us. Don't miss the story by plugging yourself into the wrong place. The giants are threatening and they are real and we get scared. We do. You've missed something until you notice God doesn't send an example for the people. The Lord sends a champion for his people. Again, verse 9. Goliath, a champion, lays down the terms of the battle. Choose a representative. If he's able to kill me, we will be your servants. But if I kill him, you shall be ours. You see, David doesn't just fight for the people. He fights as the people. It's their legal representative. He's not their model. He's their substitute whose victory will be credited to all the people. He will fight. He will face the giants. And the people's fate is bound up in him. He must win the battle. And don't you know, when they saw him defeat the giant and cut off his head, defeated him with his own weapon, Goliath's own sword, do you think they cheered? Do you think that encouraged them? Do you think that gave them confidence to follow behind their champion because he'd already defeated the giant? So now you and I can go down into the valley, yea, though I walk through the valley. I will fear no evil. One of my mentors is, a, <clears throat> is dead now, is named Dallas Willard. He said something in one of his books that I never understood. He wrote, for those beloved of God, this present world is a perfectly safe place for us to be. Never understood that line. I thought, what does this man understand and know that I don't yet understand or appreciate? I mean, how could that be true? How does David come into the battle? He's dressed as a shepherd Staff in his hand, no sword, in apparent weakness. So all this assembly may know, this is how the Lord saves, not by might, not by power, not according to human expectation. David was a shepherd, and do you remember where David was from? Bethlehem. So that everyone could witness, this is how the Lord saves through one man, a shepherd king from Bethlehem, who will deliver in a most unlikely way. There are giants. They are real. This is not make-believe. 
How do we face our giants? We need a hero. We need a David. We need a better David. And we have one. Because you know there was another shepherd king from Bethlehem, another champion who would deliver God's people in a most unexpected way, striking down the enemy with his own weapon. What happened on the cross? Jesus faced the giants. He not only stared down our greatest fear, he overcame death. And the Bible says he conquers the one who holds the power of death, the devil. And he defeated the power that threatens to ruin us and hold in bondage those we love, sin. Now, those are giants. David risked his life on the cross. Jesus gave his life. So that if you know him, you need not be afraid even to die. One of my mentors and heroes died this week, Tim Keller. Some of his last words were, all death can do to Christians is make their lives infinitely better. Where does that kind of courage come from? Because all the things we fear today most losing, our reputation, our comfort, Jesus already lost those things so that you and I might have a reputation and security that nothing can take away. We're full of fear, but you know what cast out that fear? What cast out our fear? The Bible says perfect love cast out fear. And it's perfect because it is completed, it is secure, nothing can take it away. It is perfect love for you that enables you to face your giants. Not in self-reliance like Goliath, not armoring up like Saul, not looking within, it's yea, though I walk through the valley of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. And if he is your shepherd king, then you can know no matter what valley he leads you into, no matter what you're facing today, you are not alone, and look who's with you. And he has already faced bigger giants than whatever you may come up against, Jesus. So that anything he calls you to go through, you can know he will work together for your good, all things. That reframes how we face our giants, knowing the perfect love of the Lord. You can know that suffering and death, that is not the end of the story. Failures, setbacks, even humiliations in the Lord's hands can become gifts and servants and pathways. You might know that the great writer Malcolm Gladwell wrote a whole book about this story entitled, appropriately, David and Goliath. His thesis, what appears to be your strength, may turn out in the end to be your greatest weakness. But what appears to be a disadvantage may turn out to be the great advantage in your life. And Gladwell was so overcome by the counterintuitive wisdom of the Bible that he said in an interview that he gave his life to Christ. Now, you may be asking in closing, how do I access this kind of power? Well, do you remember what happened a chapter earlier when the prophet Samuel anointed the young David to be the next king of Israel? Do you remember what happened? This is 1 Samuel 16, verse 13 reads, the spirit of the Lord rushed upon David. Don't you know when you became a Christian, that's what happened to you? The spirit of the Lord 
came upon you, that Jesus gives you his spirit so that you not only have a champion with you and out in front of you, but you have one within you. So that when you face giants and it feels like a nightmare, you know how you're going to walk out to that valley? Not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. He gives you his spirit, and it is not a spirit of fear. But what does the Bible say? It is a spirit of power. It is the spirit of Jesus, perfect love that will cast out your fears, you and those you love. Yes, you have to fight. And yes, we are afraid. As I tell my little boys, that's what makes it brave that you admit your fears. Yet because of Jesus' perfect love for you, when his presence becomes your operative trust, it no longer makes you afraid to let go of the things that you thought you needed. You can let go when you can learn something. You can learn to say for the first time in your life and mean it, the Lord is my shepherd. I have all that I need. You can lay down your sword. You can let go. You can quit playing God. And you can learn what it means to say the battle is the Lord's. How many times do I need to say that? 365 times a year. In embracing vulnerability, we accept the help that we need at every turn of our existence. That's just being awake. Are you? Is Jesus the Lord of your life? Have you turned away from self-reliance? Jesus, I turn to you. Are you learning to say, I can do all things. I can face tomorrow, not in my own strength, but I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. It's not just talk. You learn to inhabit these words as the soundtrack of your life. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. I think the old hymn writers put it best. Do you remember that old hymn? Did we in our own strength confide? Our striving would be losing. We're not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing. You ask who that may be. Trust him who can deliver you from all your fears. And in that letting go and reaching out, you will discover that he will deliver you. And maybe even that even this world is a perfectly safe place to be. Well, let me pray for us. This is an ancient prayer from Columba of Iona, the 6th century. Be a bright flame before me, O God, a guiding star above me. Be a smooth path below me, a kindly shepherd behind me today, tonight and forever. Alone with none but you, my God, I journey on my way. What need I fear when you are near, O Lord of night and day? More secure am I within your hand than if a multitude did round me stand. In Jesus' name, amen.